It's episode 948 of the Roadman Podcast. It's Friday and Sarah's here with more newbie questions. Yeah, it was interesting. We got some, we got good feedback and bad feedback. Backlash, it's called. (laughs) (laughs) Backlash, outrage. Inner tubes, shorter cranks, all the riders descend on Calpe every single year. I've never been to Calpe, It's a (laughs) shithole. Unsporting behaviour means to me, well, a million things. I mean, is he also in the car park letting down tyres? <laughs> Before we get into today's episode, I have some exciting news to share with you. It's been a game changer recently for me, making a marked difference in my performance, especially when it comes to my sleep. Let me introduce you to Pillar. Pillar is a company that's on a mission to fuse pharmaceutical precision with sports supplementation for athletes just like us. Okay, so we're all familiar with electrolytes and carbohydrates in our race preparation, but Pillar's taking a different route. It's focusing on something called micronutrition. It ensures you're ready to perform even before you hit the start line. It's all about promoting a good night's sleep. It's facilitating effective recovery and replenishing those critical micronutrients so you can perform at your best. Over the past month, I've been incorporating Pillar's triple magnesium into my routine. Every night, I take it 30 minutes before bed, and I've seen a remarkable improvement in my sleep quality. You'll know that I'm back using a Whoop device tracking my sleep, and the results of that improvement are there in black and white. I've had about a 10% bump in my restorative sleep since I started taking Pillar. I'm waking up, feeling refreshed every morning, ready to attack work, podcast, training, and just the next day in general. But don't just take my word for this. Try it, and let the data on your fitness tracker tell you the story. So if you're ready to elevate your performance and your sleep quality, why not give Pillar a try? Head over to pillarperformance.shop and use the code ROADMAN on your local website for 15% off your first order. Or for US listeners, head over to thefeed.com forward slash pillar and use the code ROADMAN for the same 15% off your first order. The details of both of these are in today's show notes. Now let's get into the show. Sarah, you didn't get cancelled in week one on video, so welcome back for video week two, and I don't know what number episode on audio we are for newbie questions. Yeah, it was interesting. We got some, we got good feedback and bad feedback. Backlash, it's called. (laughs) (laughs) Backlash, outrage. Wow, I actually wasn't really expecting the amount of comments on YouTube. It's a different type of viewer on YouTube, I think. Or maybe it's because on Twitter and, you know. Don't read the comments. I've kind of curated who follows me. If anyone is negative or nasty, I just block them straight away. But there was some people on YouTube. And I, I just think when you talk about a particular rider, last week we spoke about Matthew Vanderpool. This happened to me before on Twitter. I spoke about what happened in the Tour de France with Roglic. Vuelta. at Oh, La Vuelta. I was like, oh, with enemies like Roglic, who needs friends or something like that. Well, I kind of came out in support of Sepp Kuss and I mean, people came for me. So the same thing happened last week with Matthew Vanderpoel. The fans came out in droves and basically, you know, took us, took us apart. (laughs) Red Bull have taken a controlling stake in Bora. What do you make of this story? I think it's really good. It's good to see really big 
brands coming in and investing in cycling. I did last year for the Tour de France Femme, I did a spotlight on sponsors. And the sponsors that are currently pumping money into the sport, are a lot of them are very, very small brands. One of them was like a big motor home company. Another was one of the companies that globally sells scents. So puts it into perfumes, puts it into your lotions, all of that kind of stuff. So kind of obscure companies uh, have been typically uh, sponsoring cycling teams. So I think it's good to see these really big, big companies with plenty of money behind them coming in. What, the Jumbo what do you think? Visma boss Plunge has come out. Plunge, I'm bad at Plunge, Plunge, who plunge. knows? Plunge, I don't plunge. We've got Plunge. But he's come out and said that cycling needs to be more like Jake Paul. Now, I don't know if that's the best example in the world because Jake Paul is, I think, widely regarded as the most hated man on the internet. So I don't know if cycling needs to be more like him. Quickly explain to people who Jake Paul is. I don't know if anyone needs to know who Jake Paul is. Like everyone knows who Jake Paul is. He's the biggest YouTuber in the world or one of the biggest He's ones. a big mouth on him. He's a big mouth on him. He's not a character that... I love, he's not a character the internet loves, but I can see the sentiments from the Yumbo Visma boss because he's like, we need to attract more attention around it. There's definitely classier ways to do it. His statement is a little bit weird because he's like, we need a strong series of linked major races. And like, I'm immediately thinking like, what do you mean? Like the classics? Like we, we already, already have, have a them. strong series of linked major races, but I think there is a marketing problem. The way... Cycling teams are viewing competition, he says, is they view each other as competition when they really should be viewing the Champions League, the PGA Tour. Even we watched the darts over Christmas. How amazing of a job have the darts done at marketing? Almost everybody in Ireland and the UK now watches the darts around the Christmas period. Cycling has a marketing problem. I agree. And I don't know if Pluge was really trying to kind of push this back upon the actual cyclists themselves, because it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, pro cyclists were the original in influencers. If you think about Michael Jordan and... Pro cyclists, pro athletes. Oh, sorry, pro athletes. Yeah, they were the original, you know, influencers. That's why you went and bought a pair of Jordans was because of Michael Jordan. Um, it's funny though, pushing it back onto the cyclists. They already have a job to do. You come back in from a six hour training ride. Do you really want to document the whole thing and post it online? Now I know, hang on, I know it works for the athlete as well because it increases their profile and it's, you know, what, what's good for them is good for the sport. But yeah, I don't know. Do they, do athletes want to do that? Do they want to I don't to think it's about what profile? athletes want. It's about a necessity for, there's no such thing as social media anymore. Social media is the internet. Mm. Like, does, does it take away from Cristiano Ronaldo being a footballer because he also has an Instagram account? Absolutely not. The idea that you can't do a race and also have like 10% of your salary that's allocated to somebody posting Marketing. pictures for you. Well, that was my point. Mad. My point is that I think that the teams need to, invest in a social media team or a marketing person to kind of take some of the load off the riders and taking footage, posting, editing, all of that kind of stuff. So I agree, everyone needs to be involved, but the teams also need to accept some responsibility. It's not just like, okay, Pickcock, in your contract, you must do 10 social media posts per month, you know, uh, promoting our bike or whatever. I don't think it should be the team telling Pickcock to do it. I think it should be Pickcock's agent telling Pickcock to do it. Like the riders themselves well, Pickcock is going to be like, brands. I'm a cyclist. I'm a cyclist. I want to go and ride my bike. I don't want to post social media posts every day. What's he doing in 10 years when he's not a cyclist? You know, Rory McIlroy, Woods, these guys, yeah, they're golfers, they're winning tournaments. Maybe it's 
you know, they're making generational wealth in golf and sports like this, so they probably mm. don't even need to do it. But they're so tuned into life after sport. Jordan, as you referenced, he's still selling sneakers 20 years after retiring because he built a brand. And the cyclists aren't doing that. If we think back one generation to riders who have stopped racing, even Greg LeMond, who we have on the podcast, the LeMond brand isn't huge. He's like 1,100 followers on Twitter or something yeah, for no someone who's won the Tour de France three times. No, I agree. It should happen. I just don't know. I think there has to be a couple of stakeholders involved. Inner tubes, shorter cranks, all the riders descend on Calpe every single year. I've never been to Calpe, Anthony. It's a shithole. <laughs> I don't know why they go to Calpe other than it's cheap hotels. There's Hotel Diamante is the only feature. Like, that's how bad this place is. But that's probably why they go. There's no pubs, clubs. There's no strip clubs. If, maybe, maybe. It's brutal. <laughs> I don't know why to go there. It's like I've been there on camp and it's miserable. Riding's not even that good. Mm. So weather's not even that good. I've been there in the snow. Brutal place. Don't know why. Never go to Calpe. But they're there and they're doing some strange things in my eyes. Now they've, I think a lot of the teams have, you know, the new rule where you can't actually have your handlebars bent in. They're kind of trying to remedy that now before the actual season starts and getting the guys used to riding on straight handlebars. There's some other kind of strange happenings going on. Yeah, the holds was a weird thing where Mm. you never got into that. You had to be under the age of 30 to ride with your holds bent in. Uh, Yeah, I'm glad to see that's straightened out, pardon the pun. But some of the other stuff that's going on, the shorter cranks is an interesting one because the shorter cranks, I seen Pitcock talking on the cafe ride with Matt Stevens before Christmas. Uh, Matt Stevens does a brilliant job, but he's moving to 160 cranks. So 175, 172 cranks, which you wouldn't know what the hell I'm talking about, Sarah. Not a clue. But for a long time, they were just standard. If you were any height, you rode 172 cranks. If you're a big fella, over six foot two, six foot three, you rode 175 cranks. That was really it. No one really questioned it. Pickcock's moved across to 160 cranks and he was explaining it for a number of reasons. He said it allows riders to get lower on the bike and that's going to reduce the wind exposure. Also, when you have shorter cranks, you're going to naturally have a higher cadence, which means you can accelerate faster out of corners, respond to attacks. And he said it's a misconception around torque, that the old belief was that longer cranks provided more torque. However, he said this necessarily isn't true and that can be offset by the increased cadence. So I don't know. I think maybe we're going to start seeing a move to shorter shorter cranks, cranks, which is going to fuel a move to shorter cranks for everyone in the calf fours are going to be like, I need shorter cranks. Because Pickock has shorter cranks. <laughs> and Pickock is tiny. He probably had the, you know, shorter cranks anyway. Probably no? only 172. It was only really two sizes. Right, People okay. rarely went below it. Wow, that is interesting. I could probably do it them myself if they have a cadence and still struggling with that. Stuck at 70 rotations per minute. For the the last cranks few years. are going to help you there. <laughs> Before we move on from that story, they're still using clincher. Back using clincher. Back using clincher. Okay, yeah, like, so this is not going to be popular like either. Future. Yeah, it's like disc brakes, it's tube, tubeless, all of these things that, you know, groups of cyclists absolutely despise each other over, you know, old school versus new school thinking. So they're gone back to clincher. I think from my understanding of it, it's only for training. They've gone back to it because they're testing new equipment, as they always do at this time of season. And there's a move to developing different types of tubeless, which maybe isn't quite there yet. All the manufacturers have decided we're using tubeless regardless. I fought it for a long time because you get sealant everywhere. And last season, I finally said, you know what, I'm going tubeless everything. And I was tubeless everything. 
I kind of enjoyed it. I got into it, got into topping up sealant, got into kind of ruining the kitchen with sealant yeah. everywhere. But <laughs> this year, a lot of teams seem to be going back to clincher again with specialized turbo cotton tire on 26 mil and a fast tube inside it, I'm assuming. But maybe you'll never have to learn how to use tubeless air. Yeah, the sealant for me, particularly my gravel bike, was an absolute godsend last year. So I don't think I would ever move away from that. Okay, let's hop on into the questions. Okay, question number one. Anthony, I've seen a lot of comments about new kits for the pro teams this year. Now, I know you don't think wearing pro kit is the done thing, but which ones do you think are cool? Do you know what is weird with pro kits? Yeah. And I think I had Corey Williams on the podcast talking about this. And it's weird now that Corey Williams actually left Legion. You know, he's gone to a different no team for next year. He's gone to Miami Blazers or something, oh, which wow. is a bizarre, wrong decision in my view. He's built his own brand. Legion and was left his it. team. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was interesting talking to him, and he's the only one I've heard talking about it, and maybe it ties back into the conversation around brands at the start. Cycling team don't build any equity in their brand. Each season you're supporting quick step floors and quick step floors become something else the next season. You're constantly supporting a brand name rather than supporting LA Lakers, Manchester United. And I think that's why it's not cool to wear pro kits because all you're doing is really you're going out in a, a board of hands grove. Who wants to wear a jersey from a cooker company? Yeah, no, I agree. I think people, well, particularly for me, I follow people rather than the team. So Everyone knows I'm a massive Alec Philippe fan. So I will follow him. And Roglic, I will probably support him now that he's moved as well. You know, so it's more rider-based than team-based for me. And that's why I would never, ever wear a full cycling kit. I think most of them are absolutely hideous no, anyway. not this year's one. We'll go through it in a second. But before we jump into them, I want to talk to you An about An honourable mention. That is the worst <laughs> kit ever what was going on in the designer's mind when they sat down to create this kit? One of the best looking races in the world, Colombians, and <laughs> they've made them look horrific in this kit. The worst kit of all time. Are we in agreement? Absolutely. So for those who have never seen this kit, the girls, the ladies are all really, really gorgeous. And the kit has this kind of sash across the crotch in a skin color. So it looks like... Basically, you can see the person's lady genitals. Bits. Lady bits. <laughs> That's, like something you'd say. Bits. <laughs> That's like something you'd say when you're five. <laughs> it just feels like there's nothing left of the imagination there at all. They don't look particularly happy with the kit either. None of them are smiling. That's definitely one to have a look at. The other kit. I'd love to get you a gift for Christmas <laughs> or something. I would wear it with pride. One of the most iconic kits I've ever seen is, you know, Cipollini and that kit that he wore. I don't think it was a, key, a team kit. It must have been when he had retired, but it was basically a muscle suit. So no, was that like, was, I think he wore that in a race. I think oh, his, he did? maybe his final time trial, he wore that in a race. I could be confusing time trials, but that might be the time trial also that Cavendish came past him. Very different ends of their career. Cavendish right. on the way up, Cipollini on the way down. Cavendish came past him in a time trial and clipped one leg out and pedaled past him with one leg in the pedals. <laughs> and it was massively seen as this disrespectful, you know, disrespecting oh. one of the greatest sprinters of all time. And I could be confusing that maybe they're not the same ones. I don't think Cipollini really gives a, f a damn about 
anything Go or anyone. The wife. Anthony, that <laughs> uh, nothing is improving. <laughs> Tyler Hamilton is a bad boy. Well, he's not really. Like we've had him on the podcast, but back in the day, post US postal, post US postal, that's a tongue twister. Post US postal, Tyler Hamilton had this bad boy reputation and this bad boy team emerged built around Tyler Hamilton rock racing. This is another one of those. They look jerseys. like the Hell's Angels yeah, of <laughs> cycling. It went badly wrong, this jersey. I don't hate this at all. I really, really don't hate this. I think this is kind of cool. And because it's got like this skull, crossbones, kind of like massive big emblem across the chest, you don't have a big hideous sponsor across the chest. I don't know. I, I really, really don't hate this. It's like a mushroom <laughs> psilocybin trip gone wrong or something. It's horrible. Okay, let's go into this year's kits. This year's, well, speaking of Mark Cavendish in the Astana kit, they, the photos that these teams release are sometimes absolutely comical. There's a kind of a iconic, in inverted commas, picture here of Mark Cavendish. They've they've got smoke and a yellow light behind him, trying to make it look kind of cinematic. Oh, I think I it's. Don't a, I think that. the jersey is nice. I mean, it's just nice. He he rocks it because he's in. You know, he's got the the rainbow bands and yeah, he's Mark Cavendish is cool. So. I think Astana have a branding problem. Astana, when immediately if you say to anyone cycling and doping, doping yeah. you think Astana straight yeah. away because there's been such a checkered past mm -hmm. and they haven't changed the colour in so many years that I still associate that colour with doping. With doping. Wow. I think they have a branding problem. I would have liked to see them move totally away from that colour into an age where there's never been even a sniff of a positive test or a rumour around Mark Cavendish. Give him a new colour. Get him away from that old thing to break the Tour de France record this year. Yeah, actually, that's a really, really good point. Bahrain have put on a lovely little detail to remember Gino Major, who passed away, who got who died basically on his bike last year. It's Tour just Swiss, no. Tour Swiss, yeah. So just a little decal underneath the chest kind of icon ride for hashtag ride for Gino I think that is so nice he was such an integral part of the team so it's a lovely little detail yeah some of the other ones we won't harp on about these too long but some of the other ones I like the, uh, oh hang on a second we can't move past the brown shorts for the French team the lack of brown shorts the lack of brown shorts Le Mondial. I am devastated they were absolutely iconic they weren't iconic they, they were, were shocking they were iconic and they just looked class and now they're gone it's just boring black now well, they might actually win some races now with Bennett and the team, so. <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, the last one I want to mention is EF Education because they've done a great job with the Irish champion, Ben Healy. Yeah, the kit is cool because it's very difficult to make an Irish kit without it being really like, oh, you know, where's me lucky charms kind of thing. <laughs> very Irish, very twee. I think they have absolutely hit it on point. Honourable mention for me for the little Trek kit. When I heard little, when I heard that they were going to redesign the kit last year I was like oh this is going to be a disaster Little Trek is probably my favourite kit in the bunch at nicest the nicest kit in the peloton this year uh, I think yeah yeah Bore is always the nicest kit but oh. I'm going to say Little's nicer this year and one last mention for UAE it, they just look like winners the kit just looks yeah, class but you have to live in Monaco to wear that kit yeah it's like <laughs> you can't live anywhere else you see Pogaccia rocking his 250 grand watch on his Colnago awesome. it's like he looks like he's balling you use that in the lanes around Dublin London you come home covered in muck and horse shit and cow shit it's yeah, like agreed. you're not so cool 
white kit public service announcement for anyone who is not at race weight. It's not a good look. <laughs> Don't do it. Do yourself a favor. Go with a little track kit. Okay, question number two. Roadman, love the show. My question is, when do I know it's DOMS and when do I know that I'm injured? Also, should I just train through DOMS, like push through or am I better off resting and recovering? Okay, so I'll quickly just talk about what DOMS are. DOMS is that really awful pain that you get after training. It's caused by these minuscule little tears in your muscles that happen when you do strength training, when you push yourself on the bike. And that's the horrible, dull pain that you get. It can last about three or five days. In fact, when you get DOMS, you wake up after a hard session with DOMS that's not the worst day. Day one is easy. It's actually day two that you're in chronic pain. That's what I find anyway. After strength training, it seems to be, because it's delayed onset muscle soreness. DOMS yes. is an acronym for that. Yeah. And the delay is normally for strength training. The next day is okay. The day after is the worst. Yeah. For cardio, I find it different. If you do a bike race, you wake up the next day and you're super sore. And the and day then you after recover that, you're actually fine. Yeah. Should you, like, how do you know the difference between that and an injury? Experience. You, you'll know if you're injured because injuries are painful. Doms are uncomfortable. And yeah. that might seem like a subtle distinction, but when you've experienced both them, if you don't know it's an injury, it's probably just doms. If you're injured, you don't feel like training. Your body is giving you quite a clear signal that you shouldn't train today. It's quite acute, isn't it? Whereas doms is more kind of insidious you know yeah you know it's yeah you, you'll know you will know the difference i would say to this listener that it is doms that he's experiencing so what's your advice for pushing through well i training? think with an injury you shouldn't train with doms i think just ride slightly easier there's no point in going back into the gym or back out running or back doing another hard session like broadly you only need to be doing two hard sessions for most people a week anyway so regardless of your training volume, six hours a week or 20 hours a week, you only really have two key sessions. So if you've got DOMS from a session on a Tuesday, don't go out on a Wednesday or maybe don't go out on a Thursday for your next hard session. Just ride endurance and do your next hard session on Friday or Saturday. Yeah, exactly. And what I found is a little bit of kind of light massage, foam rolling really, really helps because you're getting the blood circulating to that area and that will help with kind of recovery and becoming less painful. We've been so happy to have Silka on board as one of our sponsors this year. For those of you who might not know, Silka offer the best in the game bike accessories like tools, pumps, plus all your everyday bike maintenance kit like chain wax and sealant. They have a true commitment to creating products that are the highest quality and even manage to make everyday bike accessories, well, beautiful. I have their foot pump here and instead of shoving it in the press after I'm finished using it, it sits with pride of place in the studio. It's a work of art. It's so cool. So if you want to spoil yourself or another cyclist in your life this Christmas, they have so many great gift ideas. And as a Roadman listener, you get a 13% discount on all Silka products. Just use the code ROADMAN13 at checkout. Not only does this get you a fantastic deal, but it also lets Silka know that sponsoring this podcast is valuable. Whether you're shopping for a gift or treating yourself, Silka has something for every cyclist who hates throwaway culture and loves quality. So check them out and don't forget to use the code ROADMAN13 for 13% off your purchase. The code and link are in the show notes below. Question number three, and this is from Stephen Kay. 
Anthony and Sarah, in sport, we have rules. Then we have unsporting behavior, which is different. I've raced as a cat too last year. And to be honest, I pushed the boundaries with sporting and unsporting behavior to get promoted. And last year, I think I got a bit of a name as an aggressive cyclist within the bunch. Anthony, do you think particularly in the racing bunch, there is even such a thing as unsporting behavior? It really seems like the rules of the jungle in there. Anything goes and it's eat or be eaten. Is there a line that you would never cross? Yeah, like this lad has got it so, so So badly wrong. Like there is 100% unsporting behavior. Like you're a cat too, catch yourself on. Like people have work the next day. People are picking up the kids from school later that day. Like you're pushing the line between sporting and unsporting behavior. There's just, there's no place for it in cycling. It's dangerous at the best of times. You don't need people with unsporting behavior. Obviously there's a there's a rush in certain points. There's going to be a pinch to get to the front and there's only a fixed number of places. The road's 10 wide and there's a hundred people trying to be at the front. But bike handling sorts that out. Like, you know, one person's going to be able to go through gaps that others aren't and fitness sorts it out. And they're the people that are at the front, the most experienced, the fittest, not the people who are most aggressive. Like there's a way to move through the bunch. And I've had this conversation last year with one of our lads in Roadman where like, as you're moving through the bunch, you can fight someone for a wheel and you can be like, oh, you know, you're both trying to go for this little gap or you're both trying to basically cram two people. There's only one person can go into this gap. So you're in a position where you're fighting someone else to get into this gap. Like a much nicer way to do it is like, you try and move through the bunch. And I learned it from just watching one of the best Irish riders, Kieran Power. And I had a team manager who said to me, just follow him and watch him for a couple of days in a race and I just watched how he moved through the bunch and he moved through the bunch like speed dating and so that's what I was trying to do now he'd, he'd touch guys on the hip and he'd be like oh how are you doing party how's you getting on how's the family you mind if I get into that little gap there cheers really appreciate it and up to the next person talks to him I actually need to get up to the front there to talk to a teammate any chance I can just move through that I'll catch you later how are you fixed for food all the way through and he'll just he'll go around the bunch making friends yeah. and there's no fighting for wheels there's no one sporting behaviour everybody is safer for it Nobody likes a rider who's unpredictable. Nobody likes a rider who's unsporting. And the guys who are sporting, the guys who are at the front of the race, the guys who are fitter, the guys who are experienced, they can also have a nasty enough side if they need to to get rid of riders who are unsporting. There's a you know a, a common understanding at the front that everyone's predictable and safe, and that's why they're allowed near the front, not because they're somehow you know Bullied laws of the up. jungle. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Stephen Kay, wow, I. I think that you you need to kind of <laughs> change your outlook in this. I mean, I have very limited experience racing, but certainly if there's somebody kind of bullying and unsport- unsporting behavior means to me, well, a million things. I mean, is he also in the car park letting down tires? <laughs> <laughs> is he putting laxatives into people's bottles? Like, what, how far does this go? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Stephen, I think certainly have a listen to Anthony's advice there and uh, pull it back a little bit. Jesus. OK, question number four. I get my fueling all wrong. I know you tried the Super Sapiens gadget a few months ago. Do you recommend this or how do I make sure I'm fueled for training sessions, performance and then recovery? I'm also trying to lose five kilograms too. So I'm in the tricky situation where I need to fuel to train, but I also need to get into a calorie deficit. I didn't love Super Sapiens. Uh, 
I think it's a great idea. And I think it's something I maybe will circle back to at some point, but I felt it left too much interpretation to the user. And you nearly, I just didn't really understand how to use that data. And I didn't have time to go and research it myself. So for people who don't know what Super Sapiens is, it's a gadget that you pin to your arm and it basically monitors your glucose levels throughout the day. It sends all that information to an app and theoretically you can then look at, okay, I had bread for breakfast, my glucose levels spiked, and then I had a massive drop in my energy levels and my mood. Therefore, sugar is not good. Now, that's at a very basic uh, explanation of what it is. So yeah, we did use it. We got information from it. Yeah, but the problem is like I had Alexander Boo on the podcast and we talked about this, like fuels substrate, like carbohydrates are a substrate and then they're influenced by so many other factors like cortisol levels, sleep cycles. So you could get up in the morning and weigh out a fixed amount of oats for your breakfast eat them and observe the effect on your blood sugar and it's X effect. Then you can go to bed the next night, wake up, have the exact same portion of oats and it's going to have Y effect on your blood sugar. Two totally different effects because you had a different sleep or you have different stress levels that morning. So for me, that's what made it a little bit unworkable at the moment because I didn't know how to interpret that data. But to actually answer his question, like you want to lose five kilograms, but you also need to fuel for sessions. Well, you need to fuel for sessions. You get your deficit at other parts of the day. So if you're going out and you're riding, you need to be eating, you know, commensurate with that ride. If it's a hard ride, you need to be fueling maybe 60 to 100 grams of carbohydrates per hour during the hard section of the ride. If it's easier, you'll get away with a little less, but you need to be having a calorie deficit throughout the rest of the day. And the unglamorous way to do that, it's just using MyFitnessPal and tracking what you're eating for the rest of the day and making sure you're in a deficit. But the part to be in a deficit isn't on the bike, the part to be in a deficit is when you're like, well, I'll have a second help in a dessert. I agree. And with regards to Super Sapiens, I think you can do a lot. We've really, we all really do. We talk about a lot on the podcast, get very hyped up about gadgets and information. But I think a good place to start is actually taking a food diary on my fitness pal or writing what you're eating down, how that made you feel, how much energy that gave you on the bike and actually cataloging exactly how many carbs you had during your threshold session, your endurance session and discussing in that diary how you felt and how your recovery was then after and actually getting to know your body and know what works for you, not just really relying on this kind of thing that you pop on your arm. That would be my advice because you will start to see patterns. You will start to understand your own body and it will just become second nature for you then. Good. (laughs) Okay, next question. This is from Kevin. If you want to be fit for life, what is the best and most easily available form of fitness that just about anyone can participate in, preferably without the need for equipment? Walking. Walking. Yeah, (laughs) I agree. Walking. A lot of people can't run. Anthony has been doing a lot of running lately and we were chatting recently about the amount of people that we cycle with that don't run due due to like knee and hip problems. And I've often commented that people always go from running into cycling, not the other way around, because if they've been running for a long time, they might have kind of niggles and the bike kind of takes away all that impact. And I think walking is absolutely perfect. It's such an important health indicator. As you get older as well, a really important health indicator is as you get into your 
60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, a health indicator is how fast you can walk a kilometre in. And the faster that you can walk that kilometre in has a huge indication on how healthy you are as a person overall. So I think walking is absolutely amazing. Stick in a podcast or just meditate, get yourself a couple of dogs and you'll definitely get the steps in. Yeah, I think one of the most dangerous pieces of advice ever was Sean Kelly's piece of advice that's been widely requoted and cyclists have talked about it for years that never stand if you can sit, never sit if you can lie down. If you can lie down, always go asleep. Because what's happened is that piece of advice maybe for world tour cyclists is good advice, but you have club cyclists thinking, oh, I can go for a two hour ride and then for the rest of the day, I can't get on my feet anymore. All the fittest people I know that are club cyclists, you know, cat ones, cat twos, they're all do their training and then they have a lot of baseline movement. They're gardeners, they're builders, they're electricians. They're on their feet nonstop. They're moving a lot because there's no replication for it. And if you want to, you know, advance the walking a little bit without the need for equipment, throw a backpack on with a couple of bottles of water and carry those around. You know, rucking has become super popular now, but all it is is carrying a load. Yeah, rucking is really, really cool as well. You did. We went on a hike a couple of months ago. You had like a 15 kilo pack on or something. Oh my God, I don't know how you got through it. But yeah, it definitely adds another element to a hike that was kind of, you know, pretty tranquilo. It really added a workout for you. So I think that's great advice. Okay, question number six. This is from Ryan. Hi, Anthony. I've been riding with a group for about 12 months now and I'm the weakest. I've learned how to ride the wheel, which keeps me there or thereabouts. And I really only get dropped up the climbs. My problem is because I'm so gassed from the get go, my focus seems to disappear and my thinking and processing information goes out the window. Apart from getting fitter, is there anything I can do to help my brain stay sharp? No one has said anything, but I would say there have been mutterings about my bike handling decisions and the odd misstep I make. Interesting. Yeah, I would question that it's a, possibly a fueling issue, but it just sounds more like a bike handling issue. Yeah, a huge chunk of carbohydrates that we take in get broken down as fuel for our brain. So maybe if you're underfueled, that's having an effect on your cognition. But I would say it's more likely just a bike handling issue. Maybe it's a concentration issue, but I think concentration and bike handling are kind of, you know, both on the same continuum. I noticed this in mountain bike races last year. It definitely wasn't a fueling issue. It was a bike handling issue for me. I could go on lap one of the mountain bike circuit and I was fine. I could navigate my way through all the obstacles. But as I got on to like whatever it was, the seventh or eighth lap coming in towards the finish, obstacles that I was clearing no problem earlier in the race were starting to get really difficult and I was misjudging the space going through gaps and that was just I hadn't practiced bike handling at that level for that long before so it's just an exposure like graded adaptation thing you need to just do more reps of being focused and switched on for that amount of time you just maybe losing concentration yeah I mean I would go back to the 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 fueling thing I know for myself Many years ago, in a different life, it feels, I used to play a lot of golf. And like my front nine would be fine. My back nine would be absolutely horrendous because of that massive big dip in sugar and glucose and brain food that I would have. And once I started eating, my focus just became so much better in the back nine. And I really feel that this is probably something that Ryan maybe is missing out on. If he's completely gassed, and I've been that soldier, I'm in the red for most of our ride on Saturday, and it's hard to eat and drink. So because you're kind of thinking, 
thinking, oh, I can't, you know, even take my foot off the gas for a second to grab my bottle or get a gel or have, you know, a munch. So that probably is, I think, his biggest problem. The other thing is just like try and catch yourself on. Try and just think, am I focused here? I'm, I'm here sitting on the wheel. Am I just ball watching almost? Am I, am I gone into a trance looking at the wheel in front of me and just think, like focus, like be sharp. So much wrong can happen. And if you're getting mutterings from people around you, people are going to start saying to you, like, you know, you're dangerous, buddy, stay at the back. Uh, so this is something that you really, really need to work on, something that you absolutely need to focus on and take responsibility for your focus, have your head on a swivel, because everyone around you is in danger if you're completely switching off as well. If you want to go out on your own, go into La La Land, go into Dream World, that's that's fine, but absolutely not in a group. So pull your socks up, Ryan. Sarah, I want to finish up with the My Woosh session of the week. We've had a lot of people starting to join us on the Tuesday night time trial, which is roughly 16 kilometers. I know you're getting better week on week, and this is a session you're going to be doing this week. It's an old school session. It's two by 20 minutes. But so there's two different ways to raise your threshold. You can work above your threshold, and threshold is the kind of power you need for this TT effort. So you can work above your threshold and pull your threshold up, but that's quite taxing mentally. If I to give you a session on a Thursday night where you're doing two by 15 at above your 20 minute power, that's hard to do after a long day at the office. So another way to increase your threshold is to work just below your threshold at 88 to 91% of your threshold. And this is called a sweet spot session. One of my favorite sessions to do, you can start progressing this to doing longer intervals, like 60, 90 minutes at sweet spot, but it's 88 to 91% of your threshold for two by 20 minutes. And that's our My Woosh session of the week. And don't be fooled, there's nothing sweet about this sweet spot. It's an ab it's absolute hell. <laughs> but go enjoy. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much.